So uh, my apologies, I realise that I didn't introduce myself to anyone who might be visiting us. Um, my name's Mig, I'm youth pastor here. Um, Matt's away for this week, but normal service will be resumed uh, shortly. Uh, but for now, um, if you've got your Bibles, would you like to grab them? We're going to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 20, verses 19 to 29, that are going to be familiar to a lot of us. Let's read these together, shall we? On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he'd said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that he breathed on them. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet have believed. What a great passage from Scripture. So, I wonder this morning, have you ever wanted to be remembered for something when you're gone? Um, for something that you've done? If you were to write your own epitaph, what would you want it to be? I'd love to think I'd be remembered for something fondly by people. Someone said to me recently, though, Mig, your fault is that you never know when to quit. So I think it's more likely that my own appetite is something like, well, at least he tried, something to that effect. But it got me looking up some famous epitaphs of other people. There's Martin Luther King Jr., the... Um, the, the famous speaker, preacher and civil rights activist whose own uh, tombstone contains an inscription from his I Have a Dream speech which just says free at last, his whole life about bringing freedom from oppression to other people. There's a famous mathematician called uh, Ludo van Koolen. Um He was the first man ever to calculate the value of pi to 35 decimal places. And on his tombstone, he simply had inscribed 3.14159265358973238462643383279502750. The value of pi. 
And then I discovered Mel Blanc, who was the voice of a thousand Looney Tune cartoons um, back in the day, and whose gravestone just reads his famous sign-off. That's all, folks. H.G. Wells, the famous author, uh, sci-fi author and future science visionary, um, his tombstone reads, I told you so, you damn fools. And then Spike Milligan, the comedian, whose tombstone is actually inscribed in Gaelic, but when you translate it, it just says, I told you I was ill. It got me thinking, what about the disciples? What are they remembered for? And we've got Peter the Rock, the keeper of the keys of the kingdom. He's brash and impulsive at times, but he's still the man that could get the job done. We've got John the Beloved, the disciple who Jesus loved. The one who's so close to Jesus that he's actually reclining his head on him at the table at the Last Supper. We've got James and John, the dynamic duo, the sons of thunder, as Jesus called them, full of gusto and bravado. And we've got Nathaniel, who was the true Israelite, in whom there's nothing false, as Jesus described him. And then we've got Thomas, the disciple who doubted, the one who wouldn't believe till it's seen it with his own eyes, the one whose name is synonymous with every sceptic, naysayer and unbeliever that's ever walked the earth since. To be a doubting Thomas carries the sense of cynicism, of scepticism, someone who won't trust anybody without empirical evidence. In short, it's to be an unbeliever, someone who lacks faith. I wonder how you see yourself this morning. Because I suspect there's roughly three types of people listening this morning. There are those that are blessed with an unwavering faith that is the gift of God himself, that know beyond a shadow of doubt that God is always there. And their experience of trust has never wavered, never stumbled, and is as unshakable as an unshakable thing from the land of things that cannot be shaken. And if that's you this morning, then God bless you. You have a fabulous gift that the church really needs. And may you always be that way, just as I am. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sometimes. There are those of us that feel that this is the way that we should be. You desperately want to be people of faith and power, who feel more like people of paste and flour, and who desperately refuse to entertain Questions about God and the Bible and life and faith for fear that somehow they're going to let God down and become that doubt in Thomas if they ever allow those questions in. So they squash every niggly little question down and press it down and subdue it for fear of being that doubt in Thomas. They force themselves to only focus on those things that are positive and that Scripture definitely testifies to. They build a solid cover to squash any question down, lest it might bubble up and overwhelm their trust in God. But you know, having questions doesn't mean that you lack faith. It's not the same thing. Wondering about something that Jesus said or did doesn't make you a doubter. I asked some of the young people, what were the things that they'd always wondered about in the Bible? What kind of things provoke their questioning 
And I got them to send me some answers. Uh, hopefully now we'll have a few of their responses just come up on video. How did Joseph know the dove's olive branch wasn't just floating in the water? I have always wondered what Jesus wrote in the sand when they brought him the woman that was caught in adultery. I wonder if they cooked the fish they gave to the 5,000. I've always wondered what happened to the donkey after Jesus went into Jerusalem. I've always wondered what happened to the fishing gear after the disciples left it on the beach to follow Jesus. And I've always wondered how Noah managed to feed all of the animals that he had on the ark. I've always wondered what the first thing Jesus ate after 40 nights, 40 days in the desert. I've always wondered who fixed the roof after the paralysed man was led through it by his friends. I always wondered what language Adam and Eve spoke. And I've always wondered whether Jesus wore shoes when he walked on water. I've always wondered about who wrote Genesis down. There are some excellent musings there, aren't they? Some great questions to ponder and wonder on. And I'd say that they're healthy questions. You see, having a question doesn't rule you out of the purposes of God. It doesn't make you a second-class believer in some way. Even Jesus' own mother had questions. When the angel came to give her the good news that she was going to bear the Messiah, she was going to conceive God's baby, she asked, and I may be parasite phrasing slightly but how on earth is that going to happen when I'm not even married yet heaven didn't rebuke her doesn't tell her off for asking how this thing could possibly be she just gets a straight answer from the angel almost a fair question Mary it'll go something like this which brings me to the third type of person I suspect the majority of us here today listening those that are a real mixture of people of faith who know for certain the reality of God at work in their lives, who've experienced something of the goodness of God, who love the Lord a little and long to love him more, but who still long for the day when we meet him face to face and get answers to all of those things that we've ever wanted to know, but we're too afraid to ask or just couldn't find a satisfactory answer for. If that's you this morning, I'd like to encourage you that you're in good company. And I suspect there are a lot of us out there with questions that we sometimes wonder whether we should really be asking. But, you know, I used to help teach on an internship program that we ran in my previous church. The program is designed to equip future leaders to think practically and theologically through, through the kind of issues that you face as a leader in the church. And we had a principle that we embodied in that course. And I think it's a really helpful one. And it was this. It just stated that the only truly dumb question that you have is the one that you have but don't ask. But let's get back to the Bible and to the disciple and Thomas for a bit because I want to see that there's more to this poor guy's character than just doubting that he's known for. First thing I want to look at is a situation that's recorded in John 10. So it's winter and Jesus has been walking in the temple with his disciples and the religious leaders get into an argument with him over whether he really is the Messiah. And in the end they get so mad with him that they pick up rocks and try to stone him. Jesus evades them uh, with the disciples but then they leave the area and they go away from the city back to Jordan. 
while they're there taking a breather from all the hostilities, Jesus gets a message that his friend Lazarus is sick. He doesn't leave for a couple of days, but then tells his disciples that they're going back to the area that they've just escaped from because Lazarus is sick and has fallen asleep. The disciples just don't understand Jesus' euphemism and they think he means naturally, natural sleep until he tells them plainly that Lazarus is dead. So they're going back to be with him, back to the place where they know that the Jews want to kill him. Now we don't know what the conversation went like with the disciples but us there was some discussion over whether that was actually the wisest thing to do in these circumstances there's no record that anyone not even thomas questioned jesus about the fact that he just said he was going to go and wake lazarus from the dead but it seems to have been some discussion on what might happen when they got there because in the end thomas says to the others let us go also that we may die with him. And it's this short sentence that shows another side to Thomas's character and one that gets overshadowed by his doubt to Monica. I think it reveals a deeply passionate follower of Jesus, a disciple who wants to be where Jesus is, possibly a real pragmatic, maybe even fatalistic character, but a follower who's all in with Jesus nonetheless. When everyone else is questioning the wisdom of Jesus' decision, it's Thomas who goes, come on lads, this is Jesus. If he's going to die, I'm going with him. And so off they go to raise Lazarus from the dead, and most of you will be familiar with the story, but if you're not, you can read the whole account in John chapter 11. But the first thing I want to point out is that Thomas is actually there. He actually saw Jesus call the guy out of the tomb and bring him back from the grave. He'd watched and maybe even helped as they took the grave clothes off Lazarus. He'd seen a tomb open and a previously dead man walking, talking and eating because Jesus had spoken the word and called him forth. And the second thing I want to point out is that this isn't the first time that Thomas has seen someone raised from the dead. Luke 7 records that earlier on in Jesus' ministry, Thomas was with him and the other disciples when Jesus interrupted a funeral procession and raised the widow of Nain's son back to life and gave him back to her mother, his mother. So just in the grand scheme of miracles happening, Thomas is not a stranger to resurrection. But still, for all his passionate Jesus following, Thomas, just like the other disciples, he hasn't grasped what had to happen to Jesus at this point. In the upper room at the Last Supper, Peter's there, not grasping it, refusing to have his feet washed and not realising that Jesus' kingdom is all about service and servanthood. You've got Jesus, who's there betraying his saviour, for money. You've got Philip, who's still asking Jesus, will you show us the Father now? And when Jesus is there assuring them at that last supper that he's going to go and prepare a place for them, it's Thomas who goes, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? 
And even then, on the night of his betrayal, after three years of constant teaching and traveling and miracles, none of the disciples have understood who Jesus is. That he's more than just a man. He's more than just a prophet. He's more than just their Messiah. And so when Jesus dies, they're all devastated. And it feels like the end of everything. Just imagine how gutting it must have felt. But then there's this rumour, this talk about Jesus rising. The women are talking about having seen him. Peter and John talk about running to an empty tomb. Then the disciples start telling about Jesus appearing in a locked room on the evening of the first day and how he breathed on them and said, receive the spirit. And Thomas wasn't there. He'd missed out on that first group appearing. Here's a question for you, because I always wondered this one. What was Thomas doing? What was more important to him than being with the others at the time? What kept him from joining them? We don't know. It's possible. Maybe he was under surveillance by the Jews or the Romans and he didn't get to go and meet with the others for fear of leading them to the meeting place. We know that the they were meeting behind locked doors for fear of the Jew. Or maybe it's just that his grief was too much. Maybe after all that had just happened, he needed time to be alone. We don't know. But maybe it's understandable then that he needed to see it for himself before he could really accept it. Yes, it's seen miracles. Yes, he'd even seen the dead raised. Yes, he'd heard Jesus' words, but so had all the others, and no one was expecting this. And it was always Jesus who did the miracles. It was Jesus who raised people from the dead. It was Jesus who gave them back their life, and now it was Jesus that had died. So is it surprising that he wondered who was going to be the one to raise him? Or maybe it was just all too much to hope for. Maybe for Thomas it's all just too wonderful to be true. Maybe it was all too marvellous that the one who you'd been prepared to die for had actually conquered death for you. Maybe it's not that Jesus being alive is too much to believe, but it's just that Thomas has to know it's him. For Thomas to be all in again, maybe he just needs to see it for himself. Maybe it's less about doubting that the others are telling the truth and more about knowing for himself that this isn't some kind of mistake. There's no imposter. This is the Jesus. And I wonder, is that you this morning? Maybe you've heard rumours. Maybe you've listened to friends or family or you've just wandered onto our live stream almost by accident. Maybe you're hoping against hope that there's some truth in these stories that Jesus is still alive. Maybe you'd love it for all to be true. Maybe you wish you could believe like others do, but maybe you just need to see it for yourself this morning. Just like Thomas, this is true. Maybe you wish you got other people's faith, but you can't have that because they're still using it. You need a faith of your own. But you can find that. If that's you this morning, I think there's an invitation 
for you from Jesus. And it's the same one he gave to Thomas. It's come. Figuratively, put your finger where the nails were. Put your hand in his side. Come and ask all the questions that you want to. But come, taste and see that Jesus is alive. And the Lord is good. You know, Jesus didn't chastise Thomas for his need to know for himself. All Thomas asked for was the same evidence that had been given to everybody else. The same opportunity to test out those wounds for himself. And Jesus gave it to him. And although he tells him to stop doubting and believe, it's only after Jesus has presented the evidence to him that he's been given an opportunity to examine it and test it for himself. You know, when Peter got things wrong and started telling Jesus off for suggesting that he was going to have to die, Jesus told him like it was and even called him Satan and told him to get behind him. Thomas doesn't get the same level of a rebuke. He just gets that invitation to come and experience for himself that this is real. This is true. It's really me, Jesus says to him. I'm really here. You can trust me. Then just like Thomas, who once it seen, he knew the truth for himself. Maybe you this morning can come and see that it's true. It is true. Jesus was dead, but now he lives. And you can make that same monumental confession that Thomas did for yourself. He is, this Jesus is, both your Lord and your God. See, Jesus is the one that death couldn't hold. He is the Lord of life and the Lord over death. He's the one from whom no one could take his life, but he chose to willingly lay it down and be subject to death so that we could now enter into eternal life. He's one for us. He's the one who disarmed the powers of darkness, making a public spectacle of them and triumphing over them through his death on the cross. And he's the one who ascended on high and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, far above all rule and authority, and the one who is able to give life to our mortal bodies too, like the scripture says. He is Jesus Christ. He is King of kings, majesty, Lord of all, and the only one worthy of our praise and our adoration. He is the lover of our souls, the saviour of our lives for the joy set before him that's the joy of rescuing you this morning giving you the possibility of being reconciled to him for that end he endured death even death on a cross so does that sound almost too good to be true it's probably because it is almost too good to be true that we might be reconciled to God, that he might call us friends and children. He's welcoming you to himself this morning. So here's a question. Can you stop doubting and believe that this is for you too? Let's pray together.
Lord, we want to thank you for the good news of your gospel. Lord, we want to thank you that this truth is for everyone. Lord, thank you that those, we are those that haven't seen and yet believe because of the gift of faith you have placed within us. Lord, help us not to doubt you this morning, but to believe that what you've done, you have done for each one of us. Lord, help us to put our trust in you. To believe that this is for us, that you are our Lord and our God. You are my Lord. You are my God. You have won the victory for me. And I am yours. Amen.